You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. 
And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Bringing down the house is a phrase that we use when there is a dramatic performance that leads to kind of riotous applause. So, you know, people say, man, I went to U2, and they just brought down the house with the show. Uh, This phrase originated in the 1700s. Um, It was a phrase at a time, it originated in the theater, where you would have a bunch of people going to these old buildings, and at the end, maybe there was a standing ovation, and the people were just cheering and erupting with applause, and uh, people would say, hey, be careful, you're going to bring down the house, right? Uh, The sense of, you know, the building's old, like an earthquake, it might not be able to take it. In the 1800s, the phrase actually became a common joke amongst British comedians, where if they were performing and they said a joke and it fell flat and nobody responded, it was met with silence, they would say, hey, don't clap so hard, you're going to bring down the house, right? It's an old house. Well, we want to look today at a scene in Mark 11 where Jesus brings down the house, the house of God, right? And as the scene uh, opens, this is a famous story, this famous scene where Jesus is turning over the tables in the temple. He's driving out the money changers like with a whip and the animals are running crazy everywhere. And as we look at this scene, as Mark 11 opens, Jesus is entering Jerusalem, heading towards the temple, and the people are bringing down the house, right? Like they're rejoicing, Hosanna, this is the messianic king, the king of David, uh, the one we have been, in the line of David, the one that we have been waiting for coming to redeem. And yet then as Jesus enters Jerusalem in the temple, he actually literally starts tearing down the house, right? Like bringing down the house and going crazy, and the people don't know how to respond. They actually respond in silence. And Jesus is like, hey, come on, don't clap so hard, guys, right? Like, did you get the joke? Uh, Jesus is kind of like, no, Jesus is actually doing something here, and the people don't know how to respond. And we actually find at the end of Mark 11 here, they're left with kind of silence, and they're going, they begin challenging and questioning Jesus. And this is actually, this scene is the climactic turning point that leads to the cross. Gospel authors tell us this is the event that kind of puts the nail in Jesus' coffin, so to speak, where the leaders say, we got to get rid of this guy the event that leads to Jesus' death. And so what is going on here? Why is Jesus doing this? Why is Jesus uh, you know, doing this, and what is its significance for us today? Well, the title for the message this morning is Bringing Down the House. And as Christian and I were talking just beforehand, uh, he's talking, and this piece of the ceiling kind of fell and landed like right in his hand. And so uh, if you would look up at the ceiling right now, And uh, tell the person sitting next to you, look out. (laughs) Jesus is bringing down the house. Uh, So let's take a closer look at why Jesus brings down the house and what it means for us today. Uh, If you have your Bible in Mark 11, we're going to start here in verse 15. It says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. 
And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Well, the first thing we see here, I think we often think Jesus is cleaning up the temple, but he's actually tearing it down. We often think that Jesus came to kind of clean up the temple, but he's actually tearing it down. Uh, we tend to think Jesus here is like Marie Kondo, right? Who's coming and like, do these animals spark joy? No, get rid of them, you know? And he's actually something more like the rock, right? Like a demolition man who's coming to uh, symbolically tear it down. And so often this scene is re- can be referred to as the cleansing of the temple. Even in, uh, as I've talked with folks over the years, I think many of us, we kind of think that um, Jesus is kind of like, dude, get that bookstore out of the church lobby. I'm tired of you guys selling, selling your wares here in the temple. Uh, but that's not what's going on. If we were to go back to Deuteronomy uh, 14, verse 24 to 26, we discover that things were supposed to be sold in the temple. God is, says in Deuteronomy, he says, hey, people are going to come to Jerusalem. They're going to come to my temple from all over the place. They're going to be traveling, and they won't be able to carry all their stuff with them. So make sure you have money changers who can exchange, and that way they'll be able to uh, buy animals for the sacrifices and food and drink and the pigeons and all the different stuff. There were supposed to be money changers. Now, maybe there was some greedy overpricing going on, like the tourist trap kind of thing here, right? Uh, but that is not the main issue. Like Jesus here, it's less a picture of him coming to clean it up and more a symbolic down. We see this when he uses the phrase den of robbers or den of thieves. You've turned this place, it's supposed to be a place of prayer for all the nations, into a house of robbers, a den of thieves. When he says that, Jesus is actually quoting from Jeremiah 7. And what's happening in Jeremiah 7? Well, Jeremiah 7 takes place at the temple gates, and God is confronting uh, his people at the temple and saying, do you think you're safe just because you're here in my house? the temple. I told you that you would stay in the land and my presence would dwell at your center in the temple here uh, if you were to do justly, if you don't oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, if you don't shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods. But uh, he goes on then in Jeremiah 7, he says, God says to his people, will you steal, murder, Commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it. It's interesting that phrase, I've seen it. Just before in Mark 11 here, Jesus comes into the temple and it says, it's like he's inspecting. It says he looked around and saw everything that was going on. It was getting late, so he left. This is the picture like Yahweh has come in the flesh in Jesus. He's inspecting the temple and he's seen what's going on. And he says, my home has become a den of robbers. And in that Jeremiah 7 passage, God goes on to say, you want to see what's going to happen to my temple? Go see what I did at Shiloh happened to Shiloh, God tore it down. Similarly, this is going to happen now to my temple. All right, well, what was the temple? It's worth reminding ourselves what's going on here. The temple was like the hot spot of God's presence. This was where the creator had come to make his home and dwell in creation at the center of the life of his people. The temple was massive. I think sometimes we think of it as just kind of being little, uh, but it was a quarter of the size of Jerusalem. Like you can imagine 25% of Stockton being the temple, the building, right? 
It would take care of the kids crowding in the kids' areas, right? (laughs) (laughs) So it's this massive uh, temple, and it was like, we tend to think of a temple just as a religious place, but it was also political and socioeconomic, and it was like the White House and Wall Street and Times Square all rolled into one. It was the center of Israel's national life. It was also supposed to be the center of the nations, a light of the world to which the nations would come and be drawn to God's presence. Uh, The Jewish people saw it as almost like an umbilical cord that brought life to the rest of God's world. To attack the temple was to attack the world. Jesus' audience would have seen his actions as an attack on the temple. Suggest to you, Jesus is giving a theatrical performance, a prophetic sign of the temple's coming destruction. This often happens in the Bible. Prophets often gave dramatic performances as a sign of what was to come. So Ezekiel lays on his side for 430 days, if you can imagine that, cooks his food over dung as a sign of the city's coming destruction. Isaiah walks around naked uh, through the city as a sign that pretty soon the people are going to be led away captive, uh, naked and ashamed. Jeremiah goes outside Jerusalem's walls and smashes a clay jar before an audience as a sign of the city's coming judgment and destruction. Jesus is a prophet like these, among other things. And in this action, he is symbolically displaying God's judgment that is about to come on the temple. In AD 70, Jesus' dire warnings came true. Within a generation of Jesus, The Romans sacked Jerusalem, demolished the temple, and changed Judaism forever. There would be no more temple, no more sacrifices, uh, no more uh, place for the priest to mediate God's presence to the people. This event radically changed uh, Judaism and Israel forever. It's just you, Jesus here is like Banksy, right? He's doing a dramatic form of public art that is sending a message. Uh, This is a quote by a scholar, theologian, N.T. Wright. He puts it this way. He says, A Jesus' dramatic action in the temple was an acted parable of judgment, of destruction. In casting out the traitors, he effected a brief symbolic break in the sacrificial system that formed the temple's main reason reason for being. Jesus was claiming prophetic and messianic authority to pronounce judgment on the temple. When he talks about this brief symbolic break in the sacrificial system, that's probably the main impact of what's happening here with Jesus is he's driving out the money changers and, and uh, messing with the animals and not letting anyone come through. He's interrupting the daily sacrifices that would be going on that were the means and vehicle through which you know, sin was atoned for and God's blessing, blessing and presence was seen to come to the world. It's like he's cutting off the umbilical cord to the heartbeat of the world. This helps explain, I think, why Jesus cursed the fig tree. Just before this scene, right, in Mark 11, verses 12 to 14, it's kind of a weird thing, right? Jesus is walking up to the temple, and he sees this fig tree, and there's no figs on it, and he's hungry, and um, it says it's not even the season for figs, so you wouldn't expect this, like finding an apple tree in, you know, January, and there's no apples. It's like, yeah, it's January, right? Uh, But Jesus gets upset, and he curses the fig tree. And I think a lot of us are like, dude, what's going on? Like, why does Jesus have a thing against figs? Like... He's back in the green room, and someone brings some fig newtons, and he's like, what are you doing? Get those out of here. I hate figs. You know, and, oh, like, Jesus just can't stand figs. No, it is another picture in this passage of his judgment on the temple. So we go into the Old Testament, and we find Jerusalem, and the temple was often described uh, with agricultural imagery. It's like being a tree that was supposed to give fruit 
to the nations, being like a vine that was supposed to give life to the world. And now Jesus is coming, and symbolically here, it's like he's inspecting the fig tree, like he's inspecting Jerusalem and the temple, and he's finding that it's not bearing the fruit it was supposed to bear. And so he pronounces his judgment, his curse upon it. It also helps explain why just after this, in verse 21, sandwiched on each side of the scene, afterwards they're leaving, uh, or they're, they're kind of back outside, and they see the fig tree, and they're like, whoa, Jesus, it worked. It's like withered down to the roots, what you said came true. And he responds with this famous saying, truly I say to you, if you have faith, you can say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, and it'll happen. Often I think we hear that, and we think that, like, all right, dude, Mount Everest, you know, K2, you know. Uh, but where are they when he says this? They are right in the shadow of Mount Zion, of Jerusalem, the temple. Jesus is telling his disciples, this mountain, like this fig tree, like the temple, Jerusalem, it's going down. God's about to bring down the house. So Jesus, in this scene, he's not bringing a bottle of Formula 409 to clean up the temple, but rather a sledgehammer to tear it down. Now, have you ever thought Jesus came to, you know, have you ever thought Jesus came to clean up something in your life? We're kind of shocked to find first that he'd come to tear something down. I love uh, the lyrics by Jason Isbell uh, in the song 24 Frames. He says, you thought God was an architect, but now you know. He's something like a pipe bomb ready to blow. When everything you built, it's all for show, goes up in flames. It's a powerful image that sometimes we can think of God as only like an architect that builds things up, but we see this powerful theme in Scripture that God can also be like that pipe bomb that tears down things that are not built upon the healthy foundation of him and his presence and his character and his ways. This raises the question, how do we respond when Jesus smashes the things that we hold sacred? The smashing the sacred. When Jesus comes and he smashes things that we hold sacred, how do we respond when this happens? I, uh, about a year and a half ago, I had this dream. In this dream, I'm in the back of this SUV and I'm kind of being driven through our city. I, I lived in uh, Portland, kind of my, my home, hometown back at the time. So back there, I'm in the back of this SUV being driven through the city and I see this missile kind of flying through the air and it slams into a building up ahead. <laughs> And the whole building starts to crumble. SUV swerves. We go another direction. We're going this way. And I see another missile. Building crumbles. So we swerve again. And we're going up over one of Portland's many bridges. And I see another missile into the foundation, the bridge on the other side. And the whole bridge starts to wobble and collapse and crumble. And as we're heading down towards the water, I wake up. I'm like, whoa, that was weird. <laughs> and now... Sometimes I have crazy dreams because I had a bad burrito for dinner or something like that, you know. <laughs> but sometimes it feels like God's saying something. And so I just prayed. I was like, Jesus, you're a good communicator. If there's anything that you're wanting to say, would you just make it clear? And immediately it hit like a hammer in my stomach. I felt the sense like God was saying, Josh, pretty soon everything that's familiar, your home, your job, your city, your rhythms, your routines, all that's going to start crumbling down around you. And it's going to feel like you're falling into nothing, but I got you. 
And in that moment, like, I knew I needed to resign from the, the place where I'd been a pastor 15 years. Uh, it wasn't just like I had the stream and I resigned. It wasn't because of anything bad at, at the church, the place I was at. Um, there were other factors, things that had been going on that I had been ignoring, um, even in, in my own life and certain circumstances. And uh, it was almost like God was pulling back the veil to make it clear, no, it's safer here. It's more comfortable here. It's uh, whatever. But I'm actually doing something that's going to require a big transition. And so I met with our elders. They saw it. They affirmed it, all that. But it, I probably cried. When we, we realized, my wife and I, my wife saw it coming before I did, as she usually does, um, <laughs> that God was calling us into a new season, and I had been resisting it. Uh, because these were things I held sacred, being close to our family, our friends, a church community we love, deep roots in a place that had been home our life. And I cried for like a month straight, like every day, just the letting go. But it felt like, God, it feels like you're smashing these things that are so sacred. And yet, I trust you. Family and I will trust you. And I believe, you know, that there is this thing it confronted in me, though, uh, that sometimes I want to use God to kind of protect the things I hold sacred uh, rather than to give them to him and to let him do with them what he will. And this is true, I believe, for all of us, that we often want to attack God as an addition onto our life. But first, God often brings a demolition to our life, right? And uh, that could be that relationship where you thought, hey, man, I'm going to start following God, and God, you're going to fix me up, so then they'll want to get married, and everything will be great. But then Jesus steps in, and he starts revealing some of the dysfunctional nature of the relationship and starts showing ways that this is not healthy and never has been. And maybe Jesus ends up blowing up that relationship that you brought him in to kind of fix, right? And the question is, man, do we trust him in that process? Maybe you thought, man, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to bring Jesus in to kind of fix me up, clean me up, make me more moral, make me more religious, get my life kind of together. But then Jesus steps in and he starts poking at your idols and uncovering the stuff that you've been exalting and making a priority over him. That can be a painful process. But because God loves us, he's going to first demolish those things because he's a jealous lover and he wants all of us. And we should have known this when we got into Christianity because the entrance point into Christianity is baptism. What is baptism? But God dunking you under the water where it's suffocating and you can't breathe and it's a place of death and he strips of all the stuff that's not of him in order to raise us up out of the waters, to raise you into life cleansed in the family of God. God's ultimate goal is to build us up and bring us into a place of life, but it often first involves a demolition of those things that are not, that stand opposed to him. When Jesus threatens what we hold sacred, we tend to turn against him. We see this in the scene in Mark 11 where, uh, again, like before this scene in Mark 11 at the beginning, as he's entering in, the people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, this is the king. And then Jesus threatens what they hold sacred and after begins the movement towards crucify him. That week they're going to put him to death. Uh, if we can pull up the slide, this is uh, kind of the structure of uh, Mark 11 here. It's in the structure of what in Hebrew is called a chiasm, which basically means you put your main point in the middle and then you have these bookends that kind of work their way out 
uh, to the, near each other, heading towards that main point. And so we see at the beginning, everyone's like, yay, Jesus, he's so good, right? And at the end, boo, Jesus, they're challenging him and questioning him. And then uh, moving in, we see in verses 12 to 14, it's the fig tree. And like, oh, no figs, fig tree's cursed. Uh, and then it, just after this scene, uh, they see, hey, the fig tree is cursed. It happened. It's withered in the roots. And then in the middle, though, sandwiched in between at the center of the scene is Jesus' actions in the temple, his symbolic tearing down the house of God. And so we see this picture where there's a movement, this action at the center is the catalyst that leads the people from going, yay, Jesus, to boo, Jesus. That when Jesus threatens things we hold sacred, this is often when we turn against him. The reality is if you exalt, the temple was a good thing. It was a sacred place. It was established, instituted. Uh, I got it. It's a good thing. And it ultimately points to Jesus, as we'll see in a moment. But the reality is when you, when things, if you exalt anything over God, even good things, and we make them ultimate things, we'll crush it. He's jealous. He wants all of us. He is a pursuing God who's willing to crash through our distance and crush down our idols to get to our heart. Maybe the assumption is we thought God was interested in our success but he was actually more interested in our sanctification. Right? It could be that this for you in the area of finances, where it was kind of like, man, I did all the right things. I went to Financial Peace University, and me and Dave Ramsey we were buddies, you know, and I chopped up all my credit cards, and I went to the 15-year mortgage, but then life happened and hit. And now, I don't know how I'm going to pay for my kid's college. I don't know if we're even going to be able to keep the house. I don't know how we're going to make our bills next month. God, what's going on? And maybe God could be like, you found your identity in being a provider, which is really a horrible thing, but you failed to look to me as your provider. I'm calling you into the season of trusting me to provide and to be with you and for you in this and to be the one who is present for your kid's future. It becomes a season that God actually invites us into a deeper intimacy with him and trust in him. Not that he's just trying to knock everything, but like that, that, that in the midst of a fallen world and the hard things that can happen, these can be seasons where Jesus invites us into a deep, deeper intimacy and trust. Maybe for you it's like, man, I thought I had resolved all those issues with your dad, right? And you think, man, I, I can empathize with where he was coming from. He was just doing the best he could with what he had. And uh, Jesus tells me to love, and so love your enemies, so I'm gonna, or lo love people who hurt you. And so I'm going to kind of put the smiley face on and be polite and put all the you know, smiley emojis, happy face emojis after my texts or whatever, you know. But then the windstorm starts churning up inside. And you find yourself now as a parent going, dude, I don't know if I have the resources or the tools to be for, what my kid, my, for my kids what my parents weren't for me. And you start to find the anger welling up, and you try and push it down, but it keeps on coming back up, and you're going, I don't know, God, if I can do this. Where are you, God? We can think God's left the building, but maybe God is actually pulling off the genteel, polite facade of your building. Because, man, the inability to really, to truly forgive Father, whoever that person was, reveals a deeper inability to receive the love and forgiveness of God in your own hurt place. God is a God who's willing to tear down the surface exteriors to get to our heart and build us back up in him.
And God's ultimate goal is to rebuild you. I like to think of it as like a, if you think of like a home renovation, home renovation, right? Um, where let's say there's cracks in the windows and there's mold coming through on the paint and uh, the foundation's rotten and crumbling. Uh, if you hired a company to come in, you're like, hey, come renovate a home for me. And they were to come in and let's just say they like moved a potted plant over in front of the window so you couldn't see it. And they just put a fresh coat of paint over the top of the mold and they didn't deal with the foundation, they just put some new hardwoods on. Well, over time, as the wind began to blow through the window, and as the mold began to seep through that paint, and as the foundation crumbled and the, the house could come down around you, you would say, they're a bad construction company. They deceived us, right? But the reality is God is not. He's good at renovation. He's good at renovating our hearts and renovating his people. And in order to do it, he's first willing to remove the things that sometimes good things that we've made ultimate things that can hold sacred, we can hold sacred and actually try and keep him at bay in order to rebuild us on him as the foundation, the true foundation. So how many of you know when God tears you down to the studs, it's so that he can rebuild you better in him? He can take kind of the dilapidated old home of our lives and turn it into like HGTV, the master craftsman looking out over the ocean, but it's a process. Again, it's a, he's more interested in our sanctification than our success, and that can take time. Well, the third thing I think we see here is that we can press into Jesus, the true temple, when the rest is crumbling down around us. That Jesus is the true temple. He is the ultimate hot spot of God's presence. He is the place where the creator has come to dwell and make his home in creation. I love in John 2 where Jesus says, hey, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And the people are confused. They're like, dude, it took ages to build this temple. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? But what they didn't understand, John tells us, is that the temple he was referring to was his own body. See, the issue with the temple wasn't that it was wrong or it was bad. Part of it was now that it... it, it there had been a rebellion against the temple's true purpose, as we saw earlier, but now Jesus had come not so much to abolish as much as to fulfill the temple's true purpose, to be the place where God has come in the flesh to dwell with us as his people. In Jesus' crucifixion, he is the house being brought down. He is the temple being torn apart. He is anticipating what's about to happen to the temple in Jerusalem uh, within that generation, and he's bearing his people's destruction in order that we might be raised with him in newness of life. This is why sacrifice ended. If you remember that interesting detail that he's kind of interrupting the sacrifices going on, why, why was it? It's not because sacrifice wasn't needed, but because in him, sacrifice would be completed. He is the ultimate sacrifice who is going to give his life. As Hebrews 10.26 tells us, uh, that we no longer need to pursue sacrifice through the blood of bulls and goats. Um, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins because Jesus, the greater sacrifice, has completed and fulfilled what it was designed to point to all along. I think we can look to Jesus 
when this is happening and see his motive in the ju- judging the temple, it's not vindictive. It's not like going, he's not like, I'm going to destroy you guys. You know, like I love the scene in Matthew 23 where Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus' character is good. He depicts himself here like a mother hen inviting us to come under the refuge and protection and shelter of his wings. He laments and grieves over the things, uh, the idolatry and the injustice in our lives that leads us away from him. Jesus' motives are good. We can trust him. And I think this is helpful. It's helpful for me. I don't know if this will be helpful for you, but I think it's helpful when we ask, you know, what do you do today when the church is crumbling around you, right? When it feels like the church is crumbling around you. We looked earlier in our own lives, individuals, right? Like when it feels like as a per, your personal life feels like it's unraveling. Um, but here we see that it's not just individual, it's institutional. The temple was an institution. And sometimes today in the church, it can feel like the church is crumbling around us literally with the ceiling this morning, right? But, uh, but metaphorically as well. Uh, this month, uh, one of the big things in, in kind of the news um, were a number of uh, influential Christian leaders who left the faith. Uh, so one, uh, Joshua Harris, kind of a respected uh, pastor nationally and all kind of let, let, let the news public, you know, that he was leaving Christianity uh, for good. Uh, within that same week, another, Marty Sampson, an uh, influential uh, songwriter for Hillsong Worship, who's written many songs that we likely sing. You know? um, these were two influential leaders, uh, and they were one of many. You probably know friends, family, others that have walked away from the faith. And we've seen it's not only influential leaders uh, leaving the faith, also influential leaders being removed from the faith. Like this last decade, it seems that often there has been, uh, whether through kind of pride and arrogance or being removed because of kind of a... Uh, poor treatment of women or poor use of money, whether it's been corruption. We've seen a lot of influential leaders removed. And knowing from so many friends growing up in a church where that, that happens on all sorts of levels in the church. We also have seen where, um, man, bigger on a bigger institutional level, things like the sex abuse scandals or corruption getting exposed and brought into the limelight. And it can feel at times like, God, what is going on? It feels like the church is crumbling around us. I think sometimes we can start, think maybe God left the building, and maybe we should too. I want to suggest to you, what if God has not left the building? What if God is judging his building? Like Jesus in the temple. What if it's not so much that God's like, hey, I tried to clean you guys up, and it didn't work, so I'm out of here. And what if it's more like, no, there's stuff built on a bad foundation and stuff that's not truly of me. And I'm about to kind of clean out some of the rooms in my house. And it may look like this thing is shrinking for a bit, but I'm trying to reestablish a solid foundation that I can build life back on. And there's a difference here with the church and the temple. Like uh, the temple was fulfilled in Christ and not necessarily coming back, right? But for the church, the church is not going anywhere. The reality is the church will go on. Like, your church and my church may not, but the church will go on. And the question is, are we 
pressing deeper into intimacy with Jesus and let him build us up in him as our true foundation? Or are we bailing when trouble hits? God hasn't abandoned his church. He's chiseling his church. I believe that God is doing something in this process, pruning and refining. Uh, and he's not judging it because it's not sacred. He's judging it because it is. First Peter, uh, we're told, judgment begins with the household of God. That because the church is sacred, because we are called to be this true new temple in Christ now, like God deals with recalcitrant, unrepentant sin. I love the psalmist. It says, zeal for your house consumes me. Literally, zeal for your house eats me up. And in John 2, when Jesus, uh, the, the tear down this temple, all building in three days, the disciples looked back and remembered, like, zeal, they quoted that psalm. Jesus has zeal for the house of God, for the people of God. It eats him up. It consumes, he's willing to go to, for the mat to build us up in his righteousness and his holiness. I love, uh, in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus walks amongst the lampstands. That's temple imagery from the holy place to the temple. He's walking amongst the lampstands, a picture of the churches. He's walking amongst the churches and saying, man, if you continue to stand opposed to me, like I'll fight you with a sword, I'll spit you out of my mouth. It's like fighting words. Jesus is going to the mat to deal with unrepentant idolatry and injustice and sin amongst us as his people. And it's not because he doesn't love us, it's because he does. It's because, again, he wants all of us. And he's willing to tear down anything that stands in the way of making us holy and fully his. I believe that God is inviting us in this season into a deeper intimacy with him to prepare us as a remnant, as his people. I had this image uh, a while back where uh, seeing churches around the city as, you know, as this process where many churches are closing down, or, you know, but seeing this remnant God is uh, building being like water fountains throughout the city, that often we see in Scripture when God judges, he's preparing a remnant in preparation for the move of God that comes in its wake. I saw this image of churches as like water fountains around the city that were pressing in faithfulness into Christ, the living water, and that through him there would be this place where people from their neighborhoods and cities and towns would be able to come and drink deeply from Christ through his people. So Jesus wants to build you up and I up as his temple as a place that can bring his life-giving water to the world. And how do we do that? Well, as we close here, how do we do that? We bring down the house. We bring down the house. We worship the true temple. We worship Christ, the true temple, with such thunderous applause till it feels that all creation might fall down and crumble in the wake of how loudly our lives proclaim the greatness of our king. The reality is if we're silent, the rocks will cry out. He is great. He is the true temple, the exalted one. He is the one in whom heaven and earth are reconciled and fulfilled, the one bringing all things together in and through the power of his resurrection. He's rebuilding God's broken world and putting things back together as the true temple. And as we worship him, as we bring down the house with our praise, the house of creation with our praise, Jesus grafts us into himself and fills us with his life and builds us up as his living temple. Peter describes us as living stones who in Christ are being built up by Jesus as a spiritual household of God through which he can bring his presence 
on earth as in heaven, here in Stockton as in heaven, in and through our lives as his people. So we bring down the house with our praise, and we likewise bring down the parts of our houses, those places in our lives that are not fully surrendered to him. We're invited this morning to get rid of anything that might stand in the way of radical intimacy with Jesus. As we do that, we find that God is rebuilding his temple with us as his people. That in worship, and not just songs we sing, but that and the lives that we live of worship, we are becoming a house, a home for the presence of God. 